Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Two of the uh, key celebrations of the Jews are Passover and the Day of Atonement. And John is going to reference these two uh, celebrations in this single verse. The Passover or the Paschal Lamb is the lamb sacrificed at uh, the first Passover on the eve of Exodus from Egypt and maybe the most momentous event in Jewish history. And according to the story in chapter 12 of Exodus, at Passover the Jews marked their doorposts with the blood of the lamb and the sign then spared them from destruction. And then uh, in early Jewish history they continued to celebrate an unblemished year-old lamb that would be sacrificed in the temple on the 14th of Nisan, which is in March or April, to commemorate this eve of Exodus. Later they would eat the whole lamb. And then the other is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. It's described in Leviticus, and I talked about it last week, that Aaron would take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. It says in 16.8, Aaron shall cast lot for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So these two goats going in separate directions. And so this is behind, if you look at John 1.29, I think this is the best one-sentence summary of the theology of the Gospel of John. John the Baptist, you know, when he sees Jesus in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this short sentence contains reference, first of all, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and then the Day of Atonement, the taking away of sin. And it blends them in a uniquely Christian fashion. First, you know, that Jesus obviously does what the Passover lamb did, that he he brings life in place of death. But then Jesus is described, or his work is described, in terms of the scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world. First, it sums up the work of Christ as the picture that here is life defeating death but also the result of this work in removing or taking away sin in the verse it also describes the scope of salvation for the world and I think it's actually a picture of the nature of sin and evil that it can be disposed of and so right after this the Passover and actually John is going to record three Passovers 
And in the early church, they would actually use John and his sequence because he marks the sequence of events in Jesus' life. There's three Passovers. That's why we know there's three years of ministry. And in the next chapter, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. But then he's also going to refer to the hour of his crucifixion as being that hour when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. So in chapter 2, the very next thing, you know, in 2.13, this is actually the only time this first Passover is recorded in any of the Gospels, that in John's Gospel. Maybe April 18th, A.D. 29, we can be fairly specific about the year of Jesus' public ministry when it begins. Now the thing to note about the Passover lamb, it is not a sin bearer. That is, it does not do what that scapegoat did. And this result then is pictured as Christ's Passover work. You know, for John, Passover is thematic. And so in brief, John is identifying the life God provides in Christ, you know, the work of the lamb, as the means of taking away the sin of the world. The life of God is the rescue from sin and death. And it has the result, and I think it's not the only result, but it has the result of sins are taken away. And so this cannot be read you know, as punishment and payment. You know, it's not simply the scapegoat. But as with the Gospel of John as a whole, the picture is of a real-world resolution to the problem of sin and death. Life displacing death. Light breaking into darkness. The bread of heaven is given in the wilderness. You know, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, there's this one who calms the storm with the I am in each instance. And so the goat of Leviticus who bears away sin, we talked about last week, the Azazel goat, has the singular function of carrying away sin and dumps it into the abyss. You know, this goat's destination is Mitbar or Erez Gezira. Mitbar is usually described as the wilderness that is the polar opposite of the holy place or of holiness. And Erez Gezira, it is an inaccessible region, a land cut off. And the idea is this goat is taken to a place where he can't get back, that it's inaccessible. And over time, they're going to actually identify this place as the pit or Sheol, another common biblical picture for a hopeless place. But the way that sin is gathered to be loaded onto this goat, it's not found in this goat. And I think this is important. It's in the other goat. It's in the goat of Yahweh, which does all the work and provides the explanation for how sin is loaded onto this goat. The Yahweh goat is the one whose blood is taken into the temple as representative of the cleansing life that God provides. Remember, God had provided Abraham the life of Isaac. He had provided life in the face of death in Egypt with this lamb's blood. And the symbolism is at work, I think, with the Yahweh goat. That here is life 
in the cleansing of the temple is what every sacrifice is about that they are cleansing the temple of death on the other hand the azazel goat sums up the negative result of this positive work of the tabernacle and the priests and the goat of Yahweh and really the story of Abraham and the lamb of Passover so I think that John is explaining or summing up the primary work of Christ in terms of this Passover lamb which is in fact not part of the day of atonement there is no mistaking you can't mix up the Azazel goat and the Passover lamb there's no danger of blending their work or, or I don't think there should be they're never brought together in Yom Kippur or the day of atonement but what we see is the work foreshadowed in the story of Abraham, the story of the Exodus, the tabernacle and the temple. That's the positive. This is what God is actively doing. Life through the lamb bears primary weight in John's sentence. Here is the lamb. The uh, taking away of sin is a result of this life in Christ. The lamb can't be a sin bearer. You can't have both a sacrifice and a sin bearer. But by linking the lamb with atonement, John is tying the weight of the entire Jewish tradition, I believe, to the lifting up of Christ. And, you know, what is that? Well, it's lifting up on the cross. It's the lifting up in resurrection. It's the ascension. That is, the cure to death is to be found in Christ. Now, there are several problems looming if we misunderstand how the sacrifice of atonement is taken up by Christ. We might assign, and many have done this, they've assigned primary weight to the Azazel goat. And they see Jesus' death primarily in terms of this scapegoat that is sent into the wilderness. But of course, the Azazel goat never could serve as a sacrifice or an offering because it was unclean. The primary work of the temple, the tabernacle, the priests, was connected with the Yahweh goat. The notion that God provides life that cleanses the temple of death. I think we have a wrong idea about the sacrifices in the temple. God wants life and the life blood is representative of the life that God provides. And with this cleansing, the scouring of sin and death can be put upon the Azazel goat. What comes first? The offering of the Yahweh goat and then it's placed on the Azazel goat. And so the action is not with the Azazel goat. In fact, it is just kind of led passively off into the wilderness. The action is with the Yahweh goat, which echoes the original sacrifice, going back to Abraham. Abraham did not make a sacrifice on Moriah, but God provides a goat. And I think that's the picture of the Yahweh goat. And it's the sacrifice, of course, that God is going to make on Golgotha. It is God who brings life from out of the dust, from Abraham and Sarah, who are as good as dead. When Abraham offered Isaac, it was his own possibility for life, for making his name great, for survival that is being offered. 
You know, it's not really Abraham's life per se. As Paul says, he was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was dead. Isaac represented their possibility for life in the face of death. And this same preservation or provision from God is reflected in the cleansing from death through life, blood, in the tabernacle and temple. So what is taking place with the offering of Isaac is what is always ritually taking place in the Jewish sacrifices. When the priest ritually applies blood to the temple furnishing, he is applying the blood of Isaac, you know, symbolically the blood of Christ, as the antidote to death. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 sums this up. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, that is, this is a real world event, not through the blood of goats and calves, it's not symbolic, but through his own blood. Whose blood? Well, God is providing his own life, the symbol of sacrifice. You know, this is what the sacrifices always symbolize. He does not provide life through death, but he overcomes death, and he overcomes the orientation to death that is definitive of sin. And so to confuse the result and the means of John's declaration is really to confuse the Jewish sacrificial system and the work of Christ. It's not simply a technical mistake, but it's really an, an ontological error in that it leads to picturing sin and death as if they have a determinative substance. Maybe it's the equivalent of letting the devil call the shots, you know. Oh, we have to pay a ransom to the devil. Or of picturing God having to negotiate with death and evil. God doesn't negotiate with death and evil. He overcomes them. Sin and death and evil, we don't want to put that in competition with God. And certainly Christ, though he was treated like a scapegoat, that is we can see in the persecution of Christ, the spitting, you know, the, their mockery, that they're actually treating Christ much like a scapegoat. But this is the work of sinners and their sin. It does not explain the work of Christ. It is like explaining the work of the tabernacle, the priests and the sacrifices if we had just referred to its scourings, or just refer to the scapegoat. I, I've been gardening, and you all know that I'm a failed gardener, and you've still treated me nicely. Even so. <laughs> Every year I try to garden, and you bring in all of these vegetables. You know, I, I thought one time I might bring one of my, my, my vegetables, but Faith was too embarrassed. And <laughs> So mainly what I get, I pick out weeds from my garden and I do a lot of weeding and I heap up the weeds and I burn them. But if I would tell you about my gardening from my weeding activity, the burning weeds is not really the way you produce a garden. It's part of it. 
And so too carrying away a goat load of sin and death says nothing about the main activity that's taking place in the temple. You know, dead weeds, that may describe my gardening activity, but to confuse the Azazel goat with the goat of the Lord is quite literally to confuse the demonic with the divine. The word, the Azazel wilderness, is connected with a demon, with what is called a fierce god. And this demon, goat-bearing all the sins of Israel, is taken to the polar opposite, midbar of holiness, to this land of separation. But strangely, I'm describing this because we get theories of atonement, penal substitution, in which the work of both goats and the work of Christ is described simply in terms of the Azazel goat, as if this does the work of the Yahweh goat. So, for example, John Stott, who's written kind of a classic book on the cross of Christ, he treats the Azazel goat as if it bears the full weight of the meaning of the cross. He says that we make a mistake of driving a wedge between the two goats, the sacrifice goat and the scapegoat. And what Stott seems to miss, well, is that they were originally absolutely separated. That's the name of the place it's taken, literally to the land of separation. The Azazel goat does all the work in his understanding of the entire institution of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. That is that all that is done within the tabernacle in his understanding is summed up in what was done outside the tabernacle. And of course, John Stott is just a good Calvinist. He's following John Calvin, who reduces the work of Christ the work of the atonement to the goat that Calvin himself says bears the offscouring, calling it the only expiatory sacrifice of the law without blood. And he understands, he knows that's a direct contradiction of Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That is, if you just do the Azazel goat, there is no forgiveness. And yet he presumes to carry over the work of the Yahweh goat to the Azazel goat. And he says this sums up atonement. He sums it up in this second goat. He even calls it a sacrifice. And again, remember, the unclean goat could not be sacrificed. It could never serve as an offering to God. And this, of course, it makes room for his whole notion that what Christ suffered on the cross was hell. That's the point in his picture of penal substitution is to reduce the work of Christ to bearing punishment, to bearing the work of the scapegoat. But unfortunately, it puts all the meaning on the wrong goat and in doing away with the significance, you know, he really doesn't point to the Yahweh goat. It misconstrues the meaning of the goat misconstrues the meaning of the cross of Christ. And what Stott and Calvin and so many of our evangelical brothers and sisters miss in the original depiction of the atonement is the Yahweh goat. They miss God. They miss Jesus. That is what the significance of the lamb is. 
the lamb, the Yahweh goat, does all the cleansing. And this is clear in John the Baptist's phrase. Because the Passover lamb is unique. It is not associated with bearing sin. And yet the lamb accomplishes what the Yahweh goat also accomplishes. This is pictured in Hebrews. The sin bearing is a consequence of the sacrifice. You know, the writer says, Christ's sacrifice was once. And of course, there's the picture of the Yahweh goat. And this accomplished the work to take away the sins of many. So I think we can identify Jesus' work with the Yahweh goat and the work he accomplishes with the Azazel goat, but we cannot identify Jesus with the Azazel goat. Jesus is not subject to Sheol. He conquers Sheol. The pit, the wilderness, the point of separation. This is our verse last week from Ephesians. He ascended that he might descend and that he might fill all in all. He empties out the category entirely, once and for all. You know, Calvin pictures Christ suffering eternally by providing life, empties out the category precisely where it was absent. In John, in chapter 16, Jesus is describing his departure. And he compares his departure to a woman in labor. If you look at verse 21 to 22. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. And of course, the hour is key in the book of John. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. I think this fits with the overall theology of John. He's picturing his departure, the cross, his death, but he's picturing it as a birth, as life-giving. And the focus is not upon the pain, the suffering, or even the sin, the focus is upon life in place of death, that overcoming of sin and death with life. And of course, this is true from the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Logos, who is the I Am. The idea is that light, sustenance, assurance is in the life of Christ, this I Am that I Am. The light shines in the darkness of death most clearly from the cross. We need life in place of death, and that's what's happening on the cross. So here the substance of two worlds really are colliding. The Jews, they just imagine that everything is about Israel. The Jews, you know, John will repeat that. Nicodemus, Judas, etc. They just have the imminent frame of Israel. Same thing happens with Rome. They could only picture things in terms of Caesar. Or maybe just simply the absolute nature of death. It closes off the world of possibility of the I am. But John lends no ontological weight to the power of evil and sin. In fact, he describes it that, you know, in the washing of the disciples' feet, there is a kind of cleansing. And this is a kind of picture of baptism. That we can take a servant's attitude. We can counteract evil in belief and love. 
And so the ontological weight of I am, of Christ, is enough to provide living water. I am the living water. It's enough to provide manna from heaven. I am the bread of life. It's enough to calm the storm. It's enough to bring healing. Jesus does not lay down his life as a payment for sin, but as John 6.51 says, for the life of the world. And for the, in 10.11, the life of the sheep. He does not pay up with death, but through his life given to all, he provides heavenly bread. That's the picture of the communion. His life, his sustenance is given to us. John Baer, Eastern Orthodox theologian, says Christ's life-giving death on the cross is not understood by John as a response to sin, but rather as principally deriving from the love that God himself is. You know, this is 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And the love that he has for the world. John 3, 14 to 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is love that has liberated human beings from the condition of being slaves. Now they're the friends of God. John 15, 15. They're members of the household of God. They abide with God. That's the theme in John. They're with Christ enthroned in the temple as sons alongside the Son. And the commandment that Jesus gives as his own is that you love one another as I have loved you. Here is salvation. In this power of love, life defeats death. And this is what rids the world of sin. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the life of God. Here is the love of God that takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but they shall have eternal life. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.